Hi, everybody. Gene Valentino, and welcome to another edition of Gene Valentino's Grassroots Truth Guests. We do these periodically, most frequently every week, and we have guests from different walks of life on with us. Today's guest is a Mr. Craig Fuller. Craig Fuller is the founder and CEO of Freightways. Uh, he is going to explain what Freightways is all about, but something I think you, especially you aviators, will know more of is his ownership as and publisher of Flying Magazine. Welcome, Craig, to our show, Grassroots Truthcast. Excited to be here, Gene. Thanks for having me. We've talked. We've talked briefly. I spotted your Sporties interview a month or so ago. And you were expounding on so many interesting things in aviation. I said to myself, I've got to meet this guy. And today's genre of how we live and work and play is so much has been made so much more convenient for all of us. Uh, just through Zoom and Zoom like products alone, where we get a chance to meet people face to face from afar and uh, and, and swap notes and collaborate. And that's the that's the purpose of today's show, folks. We intend to collaborate. Greg has as much opportunity to ask me questions as I will of him. Our goal is to just explore aviation as a primary factor. But why don't you start, Greg, with how um, Freightways fits into your aviation world? Yeah, so Freightways is often called the Bloomberg of freight. So what that means is that what Bloomberg does in the financial economy in terms of helping track and provide data to hedge funds and, and traders that are involved in moving money around the global economy, we do in the physical goods economy. So this is focused on how does freight and cargo move, uh, regardless of mode. So trucking, rail, ocean, barges, pipelines, that's really our domain. And we're looking at the global economy in a near real-time basis. So we take in data within 24 hours and basically see the economy in a near real-time basis. And so we know what's moving, what's not moving, whether the economy is, is improving or whether it's not improving or getting worse. And we're seeing basically real-time activity. So our business is basically providing market intelligence to companies that are in the physical goods economy. So this could be a retailer like an Amazon or a big box retailer, like a Walmart. It could be a company that's involved in manufacturing. It could be a company that's involved in distribution. And so really any company that's in the physical goods economy, which 40% of the economy around the world is, we become the, the market intelligence information for them. And so part of the business, and the reason we compare it to Bloomberg is part of it is a data product, which is subscription-based. And then the other part of our business is media. And so we have 50 full-time journalists around the world that are providing content and context to what's happening around the physical goods economy. And that sounds like a really weird niche. My wife, uh, before COVID, told me not to talk about supply chain because nobody cared. During COVID, I became really popular because all of a sudden people are like, why are ships off the coast of California? And why is the Suez Canal being shut down really matter to me? And so yeah, that it's interesting because supply chains became very important, but we have journalists that provide that content. And if you're a decision maker and having to respond to an event that's happened somewhere in the world that's going to potentially disrupt your supply chain. So maybe it's a, you know, uh, there's a strike at an airport or a, a riot somewhere at a, at a train station or a potential 
economic issue or just a trade policy dispute between two major superpowers, those things impact you. So when you're running a supply chain for Ford Motor Company and the CEO is calling you saying, how does this potential shutdown of the Mexican border going to impact our auto parts business or our potential manufacturing business, you need answers. And so companies come to us and depend on us us for that information. You must have been very involved in the West Coast, San Diego, Los Angeles, San Francisco data points that were blocking the supply chain network going back during COVID. Were you not? Yeah, we were, you know, we were very early on those stories and no one was really paying attention to a a lot of the sort of impacts of what COVID would do to the supply chain. You know, back in April of 2020, we were the first, I think Bloomberg called me the most bullish guy in America because we kept talking about there was going to be an aggressive V-shaped recovery. And this was, you know, April of 2020. So it was a period of time where we were very bullish, but we also warned as early as, as, as the summer that year that this would have a profound impact as the economy resurged and everything came back on board, that it would have a profound impact and would con- con- basically create congestion issues, which we've all seen. And, and now in the past you know, nine months, we've been forewarning of an imminent recession that really started to take place in March 2022, last March, where there was recessionary elements in the economy that were starting to become obvious. And now we sort of see that play out. Do you see from the supply chain network, I understand you had prepared some videos and the videos were what more informative about the information per day that was going on as a result of the backlog and the shortage or stoppages. What were those videos being used for? Yeah, so we do five hours of live streaming content a day. And it's about 80,000 people around the world that tune into our content. So imagine if you're a trader in the stock market, you're probably going to tune into a stock market TV network for, you know, have it on during the day as you do your job because you want to, if an event comes up or a story that you're interested in for five minutes, you may tune into that and then sort of tune away from the content for the rest of the day. So you're on Fox Business or CNBC or, or Bloomberg TV. And so you're tuned into one of those networks. And, and so that's what people that are really, I do it as well. I tune in, I, I turn on CNBC every morning, watch the show throughout the day. And then I change between the networks. It's sort of my morning routine, my day routine. But one of the things that we do is we do the same thing, but we do things that are for folks that are focused on the supply chain. So supply chains, 40% of the global economy is logistics dependent industries. It is, there's 8 million people in America that work in logistics. So it's one of the largest employers. And these individuals are responsible for basically moving goods, but they need real-time information. So, you know, it could be a weather event that's happening. So we had meteorologists that are talking about the impact of a major weather event that's going to disrupt the airline industry and what that means over the holidays, as we saw this past month. It could be a new rule or law that's being discussed in places like California with AB5 or perhaps a federal government change in regulations. Those things impact the way supply chains work, and they impact the way that we all buy and sell goods and deliver goods. And companies and individuals that are responsible for knowing need real-time information. Now, they're not trading stocks, but they are trading they are moving goods and they need to know what's happening. And they don't, because the supply chain is so, it's real time. Things are moving in real time. 
you need to know what's happening right now on the ground. And that's what we do. And so that video content you discuss is five hours of live streaming content. We have a full-time production studio. We have 20 full-time staff, videographers, all of the you know million dollars worth of production equipment and pre and post. And then we have the former head of ESPN's international production that leads our production studio in Chattanooga. And again, it's just providing a live TV network over the top streaming network for folks that are involved in supply chain that have to keep our economy moving. I could not think of a more important place to be as as it pertains to the economy right now. The supply chain network, which was the cause of many other problems, including inflation and and other just general increase in prices is to me one of the culprits behind some of the pro- in- in- inherent problems we're having in today's economy. And it seems you got your finger on the pulse of the information that could be dis- that is being distributed worldwide. Do you see so from that front row seat to the movie that you seem to have, <laughs> do you have an insight? as to where you see this economy going from a supply point of view. Yeah, absolutely. So we saw, and we we published this on March 31st of last year, there was an imminent freight recession, we call it, which is, you know, my preview and, and my focus is not on the broader economy. There's a lot of services and financial impacts in the economy itself that an economist would say, you can't be in a recession or you won't be in a recession with all these other sort of issues or sort of expansion around services or or the money supply. Um, Whereas we focus on physical goods, the main street part of the economy, the stuff that frankly, most Americans are concerned more about because these, these are the goods they buy. So if you work in a business or own a business where you're selling physical goods, then you care more about how people are going to buy those goods than or employed by companies that do that, then then what you will services or the overall GDP or, number. Or even the napkins and delivery to the restaurant or the straws or the cups. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so in March of last year, we saw an abnormal change in the supply chain. We saw a complete change in direction. And we basically, it really caught us off guard because typically in March is the season where all of a sudden you start to see an acceleration in demand. But we saw a collapse in demand that took place in March of last year. And then in the summer, so we reported this and a lot of the transports sold off, sort of crashed the market, if you will. The transport sold off based on our report. And then in in the summer, we did another report about imports as we saw like everyone had predicted when China went through its first major lockdown of 2022, Everyone predicted that when it came back online, that was going to be the tsunami of freight that was mm. going to hit our coast. That's right. It caused another supply chain crisis. Yeah. We were looking at the data in real time. We see on the ground in China, Vietnam, wherever, we see what's being loaded and being booked onto the ships, oftentimes a week before they end up on the ships. And you think about the transit times it takes to go from China to the United States, we're talking about a six-week leading indicator. But We saw something really interesting in late May, which was that China had somewhat reopened, but rather than an acceleration in demand, there was a massive contraction in demand. In fact, import exports out of China and imports bound for the United States had dropped by 40%, which is worse, which is bigger than the depths of the great financial crisis. So you think about that. And it was interesting because two of the major banks, JP Morgan, 
and Bank of America reiterated our call. Global shipping stocks sold off about 15% on reaction to that, wiped out about $100 billion of market cap to global shipping stocks. But then some of the banks came out and said, we don't see the data. And what they were looking at was the import data in the United States and saying, wait a second, imports are at record highs. How possibly could the market collapse like this? And if, if Freightways prediction is correct, then this is worse than the great financial crisis because of the depths of the financial crisis, the drop in imports were 18%. We were talking about a 40% drop. And the reason we saw it was because we were tracking the, the freight that's being loaded out of China and seeing before it hits the US shores, weeks before it happens. And so that's exactly what's happened. US imports across the borders, you know, US container imports are at, have dropped at a record low. We've seen a contraction of 18% in the month of November and another contraction in December of 17%. This is the worst drop in imports in history. And we're down, you know, as, as much as, what we predicted, that 40% drop has now played out. So we're seeing a situation where that supply chain congestion is largely gone. And now we're dealing with a, a situation where the supply chain has been warning us for six months and maybe as much as nine months that there was an economic issue in the economy, is that the economy is slowing down. So then the, the PMI number that people look at in terms of, of demand is at a is at the second lowest point number in history. Well, that all was being revealed by the supply chain six months before those P&I numbers showed up. And so now what's happening is everybody sort of believes that a recession is imminent. And I would argue that recession for freight has already happened. And we're actually at a point now where we see the economy starting to stabilize. I I would think that the ripple, that the impact in freight imports in particular took the hit because of the propensity of outside import. We Americans are, have, have put ourselves in the position for over the last few decades. And uh, But as you said, the ripple effect has become more neutralized as it spans out across several economies in, in our nation. I suspect one of the solutions, and I hope someone looks at that, staying off politics for a minute, I just hope we recenter ourselves with manufacturing and supply chain distributions from uh, manufacturers and innovators within the United States so that we are not so become beholding to the data that you're presenting on what's going on in a crisis mode from foreign import. Well, here's the good news is we, we track the domestic economy as much as we do the international. And we are seeing more jobs and more manufacturing and distribution investments in the United States from foreign companies and domestic than we have at any moment in time. In really? History. And that is one of the reasons, and it's not discussed often because the data is hard to get to. And frankly, most people don't understand how supply chains work. Certainly, our federal government doesn't understand how supply chains work. I mean, when you hire people who have no depths of experience, who worked Scary. at McKenzie or Deloitte, and then you give them the job of basically the running the task force and say, look, you know nothing about this topic, but we want you to make decisions. Oh, they so know true. nothing about it. The, the federal oh. government is in many ways let us down. And this is not an administration problem. This is existing. I ran FEMA disaster log- logistics since 2003. 
And I can tell you in every administration, the federal government, when it comes to managing the supply chain, just is inept. And this is a reality that we're going to have to contend with. And we're in a new Cold War, which what that means is that the front lines is not necessarily what you saw during the traditional Cold War, because there is still going to be trade. But the new Cold War is going to be defined. The front lines are going to be supply chains. And we've seen this happen recently where, you know, Russia has been has been threatening Europe with natural gas. And, and, and Europe has said, you know, we're going to cut off Russia and energy imports into it. We've seen that there was a blow up of a pipeline. There's a lot of questions about whom, who is responsible for that. Right. These are supply chain issues. These are front lines of supply chain. And essentially, that's where the front line is going to, be, to play out. And look, China's strategy of, of zero lockdown is more to do with economic pressures and sort of reaction to slowing demand as much as anything. And so yeah. there's a lot of factors that are playing out in the economy. But one of the great things that we do a lot of what we call site selection studies which is we help corporations figure out where to locate a plant, where to locate a site, a distribution center, because over half the cost in a supply chain is in the transportation of products. And so they're trying to figure out where do they put these things. We have seen so much demand of companies thinking about bringing back manufacturing to the United States. It's an exciting time. One of the byproducts of that is that's causing a lot of the labor tightness that you see in the market is that labor is being soaked up by a lot of these new expansion of manufacturing that's happening across our country. Yeah, I see I see a complete new wave of of new manufacturers. There's uh, in all ranges, technology, wholesale distribution, there's going to be a complete backfill. It's going to take another decade, but you talk about different supplies. One of them is the money supply. And I see China trying to reorient the world's culture in trying to convince them that there's another money supply other than the American dollar. That, that is still, at least today, world-based. Good, good but, luck with that, right? Yeah. If anyone can trust the Chinese Politburo I'm, to- well, I'm glad you stuck that in Essentially manage the global currency. I mean, this- Yeah. This, Do you the, trust the, them on anything else at this point since they raped us with all our technology and infrastructure? Like, that is part of their plan. Like, there is no- This isn't, you know, xenophobia that they're doing this. This is yeah. actual facts that they have a- tendency to rip things off. And no one trusts the Chinese government on anything. And if you if you need not go further than look at the videos of them locking their own citizens up and barricading in their homes, and there are people dying inside those homes yeah. without regard to human life. And we can criticize the American response to COVID all we want, regardless yeah. of whether you believe we should have been more, you know, more stringent or, 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 or more liberal in terms of of, of, of sort of more free and how we, regardless of how you think the American government did and what grades you get, no matter where you sit on that sideline, is we are blessed to be in a country, but with rule of law. And as dysfunctional as our government is, and it is highly dysfunctional, we are fortunate that we live in a dysfunctional government. Oh, we Because are. what you don't want is a very functional autocracy, which is what you see in China. Yeah. And 
and and if you trust them with currents global currency oh this if you think that is the case absolutely no. under no terms is that going to happen yeah we are very self-deprecating we we criticize ourselves a lot we call ourselves into question the media is certainly anxious to pile on but but the fact of the matter is that's also what makes us that's keeps us surviving as the kind of free society we are the autocratic few at the top in china are definitely with the chinese communist party's plan to take have openly admitted they want to take over our democracy well they'd like to try but they won't because they won't but i am cautious about them buying up any more farmland to pick on that issue for a second they've got their tentacles out into certain areas and i hope america wakes up and uh, becomes more caring about its own. America, I mean, one of the things about China is it has a massive sets of vulnerabilities that is underappreciated. So imports the majority of its energy. So it is now the world's largest energy importer. And so if it were to lose energy supply, basically the country would shut down in a matter yeah. of weeks because it's so vulnerable and it imports the majority of the food that it consumes. It, it is the world's largest importer of food. And so that's you right. have these big issues that, that China is incredibly vulnerable and they know it. And that's one of the things that we don't understand in the West because we're just, we're, we're built different. We're raised different, you know, just, just the cult. There's a lot of cultural differences in how, how we think Yeah, the Chinese are incredibly smart long-term thinkers and strategists. And they are make they have been making plans because if you sort of study Chinese history and particularly the art of war, it's all ultimately about winning the battle without actually going to war is you can defeat your enemy without actually going to war. And so a lot of what they're doing is playing this long-term game using our own vulnerabilities and economics and, and freedoms against us in a way to really benefit themselves. But is, isn't and, it amazing how they have gone? I mean, they've got a 100-year plan in place. We yes. politicians go in, we're worried about two weeks, two months, two years, not necessarily four years. That's the fallacy of the democratic system. Like That is, it is, it is the, what is it? I think, was it Churchill that said it's the best, worst form of government or something? Like That's correct. It is, it is so dysfunctional and you know, we sort of look at all of the, and I don't care what side of the aisle you're on, but it is right. one of the most dysfunctional things ever. But thank God it is because, oh, like, absolutely, we should absolutely. all relish in the fact that our government doesn't have as much power as <laughs> some of these politicians would like. Hi, folks. Welcome back to our continued discussion with Craig Fuller. Craig is the founder and owner and CEO of Freight Waves. In the last 40 minutes, we've had a very interesting discussion on a lot of supply chain related issues, which is the crux of Freight Waves' involvement in in, in one of uh, Craig's businesses. But, you know, something went afoul with the, the Zoom recording and I got to admit to you, Craig, it must be the Chinese since that's what we're blaming. I, you know, I was almost it. wondering whether the NSA, because I was talking about the U.S. government at the moment in time or the Chinese Politburo 
were trying to shut us down. So yeah, exactly. I certainly feel I feel like we're on some kind of watch list now. So we're on some watch list and now we're pegged. We're gonna changes the algorithms, as they say. Okay, so we've had a great time talking about a lot of a lot of the things involved in your freight waves business. I want to turn the subject now to something else that is most entering interesting to both of us, not to mention our audience. Flying magazine. Greg is publisher and owner of uh, Flying Magazine, and it's where we started the conversation. I had first spotted Greg on a Sporties magazine, Sporties interview with Craig, and uh, it caught my attention. And aviation is what Craig and I have in common. It's a strong passion we both share. And uh, tell us about your background in aviation. So I've been flying since I was 13 years old. So I learned to fly originally on a Microsoft flight simulator at like five. And so the two inspirations of my life were Top Gun and and Microsoft flight simulator. So I asked my dad if I could go up for lessons and he surprised me on my 13th birthday. So I learned, started flying at 13, got my license at 17, did my first solo at 16, got my license at 17. And then I flew all the way to college Got my got point. I had 60 hours of instrument time and I was going to take the instrument test. And then I went to Hong Kong for school oh. and I never picked it up. I had 200 hours and for 20 years, I didn't pick it up. And after Freightways got to the point of not reason needing to raise capital, you know, when you start a business and business gets to a point of scale, you start as CEO, you start firing yourself from every job. And I got really bored. And I was trying, it's middle of COVID. I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And so I took back up with aviation. And I remember when I was looking, but I wanted to buy an airplane because, you know, one of the things about flying is when you're flying and you're renting from, you know, a flight school, you're sort of subject to getting on a calendar or a schedule, which is quite difficult with with a successful flight school because they're always flying the airplanes. And, and the flight clubs, you just, you know, depending on how good the flight clubs are, the types of, of airplanes you can fly is 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 quite it varies quite yeah. a lot so i wanted to own something and i ended up picking the icon which you and i share in common it's a wonderful plane uh, yeah. i'd love to hear how you came across the icon but i also started reading a lot of the content aviation content and flying magazine i grew up i mean it was the in my day you know as i was a kid of the 90s i was sort of coming of age when i learned to fly and it was in my mind, it was as, it was cooler than Sports Illustrated when Michael Jordan wow. was on the front. I mean, this was this was the magazine I waited for every single month oh, to come in the mail. And I started to read a lot of the content. And maybe it's because I'm a media executive these days and I become a lot more. I look at things a little different now that I run a business that's in the space than I would have otherwise. I just felt like flying had lost, really lost a lot of the momentum and sort of what made it special. And so I decided one afternoon. It was, I couldn't fly because the weather wasn't great. And I ended up reaching out to the owner of the magazine and asked if they would sell it to me. And uh, he said, Hey, it's not for sale, but I'm happy to speak with you. And, you know, a couple months later, it became mine. So, and then things happen. <laughs> yeah. And I love it. And, you know, the, I mean, Gene, you fly the icon. You're a huge fan of it. How did you get into the icon? Well, it's, it's an interesting story. I was, I held, several businesses in my life along the way. And uh, I was growing so fast in the payment processing industry 
I created my own version of PayPal back in 1999 when they thought it was a communist conspiracy to be <laughs> using a credit card on a, in a web-based environment. What are you, nuts? You're going to put your credit card on the web? Oh, and that was 1999. By the year 2000, I ended up creating Collector Solutions. The company, we got our first client was the local county tax collector, so I wrote the interface into her software, the tax collector software. And so she was proud to announce that she was the first tax collector in the state of Florida here to allow folks to pay their taxes online. And uh, it caught on. Started going to the tax association meetings. And at the meetings, I met so many different people and got other counties around the nation to come on board with payment processing, and then got a few contracts with the different states. My team was so slammed. As you know, if you're in any part of of code development, our team was so slammed. I even hired out to a group in Atlanta, another 60 people, to build the software on an accelerated basis for distribution, efficient distribution and implementation into the management information softwares of various enterprise software systems throughout the nation. And while that was going on, I said, I better take a powder and go find something else to do because I'm going to have a mutiny on my hands if I don't do something with these poor folks and letting them lead a normal life. And uh, it was a great opportunity. We paid well for all to paid them all very well. And while that was going on, I got elected as county commissioner here in the county. I was one of five county commissioners here in Escambia County, Florida, and one of the major hoteliers who was an aviator himself ends up having a, a base of operation at the local airport, and he had the Honda jet that you have interest in, and he ends up hearing me talk about this Icon A5. And I would talk about it and talk about it and talk about it. And I showed him how for just $5,000, you can put a deposit down on this light sport aircraft. He says, Let me, I'm going to get you a little a novelty gift, but I want to use your credit card. I looked at him for a second. You need my credit card? Yeah, yeah. It's a small little thing I'm going to put on your credit card for you. So within 10 minutes, he comes back into the office I was at with him with papers, receipts, documents, and he hands me back my credit card and he says, you now own your own Icon A5. I said, what? He says, yep, I just put $5,000 on your credit card. Here's the receipt. And you're now number 337, 377 in line for the purchase of the Icon A5. Now, this is back in... Uh, the year 2008 or nine, when it was just coming on, just coming out. And there was a waiting line that went up to about 800 use potential buyers. And I said to myself, Oh my God, he just put $5,000 on my credit <laughs> card. He says, now look, if you don't want the aircraft, I'm taking it off your hands, but you are now the owner of an icon a five. Well, yeah, I don't know. That's a great story. That's Jean, exactly the push I needed. If to someone took my credit card, I don't know how I would feel about that. But it was it was a little there was a moment there, I'll give you that. <laughs> <laughs> I had a little sobering sense. But as it grew on me, he says, I'm glad he did it. I'm yeah. now in line. 
I'm ready. It's I'm a, gonna, I, it's my piloting goes back to 1975 when I was a senior at the University of Connecticut, and I became a, a VFR pilot out at the Yukon Flight School they had there. And so only during uh, the period of Hurricane Ivan here in Florida, I became inactive for a few years. And then, so with last year, well, actually six years ago, I got, I, I put a deposit down on the Icon A5 in Tampa, and I would go to Tampa from here to Tampa every month to stay current and just stay up on the aircraft. And the deal with Icon was, okay, when you come out with the version and when I'm ready to bring the Icon into my hangar right here, I'm going to turn in the keys on this one and you're going to give me the keys on the new one. So sitting about 50 feet away from me down here in the hangar is the Icon A5. It's a one-year-old aircraft, ASN number 142, and it's it's on its first annual inspection right now. That's and awesome. That's, so to answer your question, that's how I got into it. And I heard through the folks at Icon that you were a pilot too and and an owner of an Icon aircraft. And I said, so wait a minute. Is that the same guy who owns Flying Magazine? And that's how the relationship developed. I looked you up and found out the saw this Sporties video and the rest is history. That's awesome. It's a, it's a great, as you, I mean, you know that, but they're, Listeners may not. It is a great airplane, and it is is different than flying anything else because you have it. You can have an adventure every time you go up. Oh yeah, and like, there's nothing. I love flying into landing on runways. I always get you know. It's always fun, sort of a challenge of figuring out how to you know in a new airport that you're not familiar with. But flying the Icon on water, it just oh yeah, it's an entirely different. And there's nothing like it. Taking somebody up who's never been in like a small aircraft. And taking them up and landing on water. Uh, I normally don't tell them we're about to land on water. I just sort of surprise them with it. And they're <laughs> yeah, like, that's cool. They're always like, what? what? Wait, wait, we stopped. Like, and then they realize they're on water. And it's sort of like this, like, oh my God, that was so cool. It's just nothing like it. Well, I've got an offer I'm going to make to you right now, right on our live broadcast, which can be re replayed. I was just invited to be in the. Blue Angels. We are the oh. home here in Pensacola of the Blue Angels Air Show, which is the first weekend after July 4th weekend forthcoming. I was there, one of several citizen, non-commercial, non-military aircraft flying in the Blue Angels Air Show last year. And I make an invite to you. If you can figure out how to get to Pensacola with your Icon A5, we will have you in the Blue Angel Air Show, and we'll do a um, a joint flying routine for 15 minutes. They allow in the three hours of segment prior to the Blue Angel Air Show itself is the warm-up show, and a lot of acrobatic aircraft and specialty aircraft come in. Wouldn't it be nice to do a tandem flight together uh, down here in Pensacola. And we do do the splash and goes right on the water at Pensacola beach, right off the casino beach pier. And it's, it's in, it's before a crowd of 150,000 people. The place is packed for three days. Now, Gene, you don't have to twist my arm. Flying uh, yeah, with I the, can see flying with the blue angel and flying. Isn't really, there's not a lot to do. Is there an we argument? We should cover that. You know, yeah. we should get flying magazine to cover it. 
You know, one of the things I actually own two icons. So when they they came out with a new paint color, so I bought I bought I own number fifty one. I think is the serial number, right. and I bought it. It was the first plane I ever bought, and I, it was last year, uh, two years ago. And uh, I loved it so much, but the new paint scheme came up with the autopilot, and I thought, well, I really would like that. So I was oh, going to I was going to sell the first one I bought, and I couldn't let go of it. So I ended up moving it to New York. It's uh, now sitting, it's up in New Jersey at a small airport up there. That I, I, What's great about the Icon is I've flown it over the Hudson Corridor, you oh, know, boy. through the you know, right by the buildings and you're you know, right by the world with, you know, the Freedom Tower and, you know, all the way up to Central Park and stuff and up to the Hudson Valley. It's just, it's incredible. It's One of the great things is, you know, you're flying a thousand foot AGL right off the water. If something goes wrong, you just land. And that's what makes the icon such a powerful, so you have a runway almost it's that, as long as you fight on water, you have a runway right under you. So it's a really cool yeah. experience. One of the things we're doing, uh, so my wife gave me a really hard time about owning two, and it has been giving me a hard time about it. <laughs> so to compromise with her, I we are actually giving away one of the icons that I own in a sweepstakes at Flying Magazine. So if for, it's for Fiber of Flying that is a subscriber enrolled at the time that we do it has the opportunity to win it. You can also, there's no, there's no purchase necessary. You can mail in to, to ask to be a part of the sweepstakes. But it's one of the nice things is that we're, you know, for us, we're, we're able to sort of share this experience. We're all excited to figure out where that goes. And uh, it has been incredible. One of the things we, we've done, we have another airplane for folks that don't want to go through the seaplane training because it is an intense training. It is not an aircraft. You know, it's not a great utility aircraft in the sense that you can do long cross countries with it. Like it's, it is a aircraft that's intended for fun and adventure. So we have another airplane we're getting given away, a Technum Store, which I also own because my wife's giving oh. me a hard time about all the airplanes I've bought in the last year. <laughs> so one of those planes will be given away. But one of the things that's really interesting about the sweepstakes that we found is that the Icon, so we have two aircraft. We have a Technum and we have a an Icon. And what we found is that there is an entirely different audience that the icon resonates with that was not a part of the traditional flying audience. So the Technum is very much in the core flying audience. But what uh. we found with the icon is that it's it's attracting an entirely different audience than we've historically had subscribers with. And a lot of it is folks that are in the simulators. So the icon is a featured aircraft in the Microsoft Flight Simulator. And it, it is what's interesting about it is the folks that a lot of the sweepstakes entrants, the folks that are participating that sweepstakes responding to that tend to skew higher towards an audience of folks that are into things like simulators than our average audience. So it's been it's been an interesting data point. Well, I'd like to put in another plug for you, folks. I mean, Greg's offering you uh, a potential of winning an aircraft here. So. Get on flyingmagazine.com, I presume? Yeah, it's flyingmag.com. You can go and subscribe to the magazine. Every subscriber is automatically entered. If you don't, we also offer $30,000 of training and insurance because the, the icon, you want to get the training. And so we are providing the resources and the, the financial resources to help those to get the training. And uh, they can do it, but they don't have to pick the icon. If they're not comfortable That's going right. through the seaplane, they can get the Technum. And so the, the you know what what I think is really cool about this is that 
And I think just generally the icon, not about the sweepstakes, but the icon is that it has created this entirely new type of a flying. And we see yeah. it not just with icon, but a lot of the backcountry flying. Yeah. And I think it's the YouTube generation that's really changed this, the Instagram sort of environment where it's it's opened up an entirely different type of flying that isn't your Cessna 152 aviation. Yes, like, yes. It is, yeah. it is, it is. It is about activities, and I, I'm just so excited about what it, it ha- is happening on aviation, all of the innovation that's happening, all of the new types of aircraft. I think we're on the greatest renaissance to happen in history. I'm glad you brought aviation. that up. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. The renaissance, the, there's a there's a transition going on, and I think it's a game changer in aviation. Some of the things you and I are learning, even in our IFR training, is becoming obsoleted by the uh, by the technology that's sitting in your dashboard it's turned out to be such a fun it's 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 always been fun but it's more fun now and for folks of you listening who really want to maybe tiptoe into aviation greg's touched on something that's very provocative it's the the light sport aircraft category the faa is taking a harder look at how they're going to certify rate classify a lot of things the insurance industry is even doing a second look at it now because it's not only safer but it's the innovations are all new wave with the ballistic parachute built right in just think you've got a three million dollar aircraft a cirrus sf-50 jet that commutes six people more of the long-range stuff that you utilitarian stuff you were mentioning and the other extreme, the light sport aircraft, which is what the Icon A5 is, both have a Garmin G3X autopilot and navigation system along with the ballistic parachute. Can you imagine that? The, it, the ballistic parachute has never been used in the Icon I'm aware of, thank God. But you're, <laughs> as part of your training in, in Tampa, at least mine in Tampa, was the routine of putting your hand up on that tug and getting ready to pull that parachute If as part of a procedure in training. It's an emergency procedure, of course. You, you better not be hitting a building or another aircraft, which would probably be one of the few times you'd need to use it. But... The, but the, to the seaplane landing, the rating for the seaplane rating itself down in South Florida was the biggest treat to me. You could get in there and landing in um, on the calm waters, the choppy waters. You're definitely under two feet, two foot waves. You're not going to be in waves any deeper than that. And even at two feet, you're being very risky. But if you've got a ripple on the water or or that that's the ideal situation when i flew this past summer july 4th weekend at the blue angel air show the wave the swells weren't that bad we had rolling swells of a foot maybe but relatively speaking it was calm folks we're list, we're talking with greg fuller owner and founder of freight waves but he's also the owner of Flying magazine. Repitch that offer again, Craig. What's the deal if I if I subscribe to the magazine? Yeah. So if you're a subscriber to Flying Magazine, when we so we're it's next year's Sun and Fun is when we will announce the winner. So through March 31st, 2024, if you're an active subscriber, you're automatically entered 
in the sweepstakes to win an Icon or a Technoma store. So the Icon A5 that we've talked a lot about, this great seaplane axe, you are actually automatically the entered to win oh, the Icon. Actually, one of the Icons that I own uh, that my wife has twisted my arm to, to, to sell it or give it away, we're doing that. So your, your wife uh, needs to meet my wife. <laughs> She's now didn't think she had any interest in flying. She's now helping me with some of the navigation on the Garmin G3X and she's hooked on it. So, That's awesome. So I've got my built-in co-pilot. So, and, <laughs> so Gene, I'm glad you could you figured out how to get your wife. So one of the things my wife, uh, now we have young kids. We have we have uh, five kids, three of them, you know, I have a two one-year-old twins and a three-year-old. So the kids are young. So there is certainly a risk as the risk in aviation is any any activity. So my wife is always sort of cautious on how often she goes. She swore she would never fly with me. And then on my birthday, she came up with me. And now we're, we're easing into it. So this past <laughs> week, she wants to go to a baby shower in North Carolina. And she realizes that we can get there in 45 minutes versus three hours and says, hey, can you fly me to this baby shower? And I'm like, absolutely. Now, if she asked me to drive that, no. No way I'm driving that. So, but it, it is down, fun to be able to fly it. I'm going down to Central Florida next week. And boy, I'll tell you, that eight to nine hour drive is no longer of interest to me. Just to think I can get on this thing here and get there in less than three hours. It's not a high speed aircraft, it's truing out at something under 110 miles an hour, but it's still faster and direct and immediate. And I think the world's moving in that direction is when you see people looking at drone activity and being licensed and trained on drones for certain purposes, generally under four or 500 feet and the FAA having to step in to regulate that now because of concerns to you and me approaching our final approach and getting clipped by one of these drones which could be a new peril that we're going to be having to deal with on landing can be can be a risk. Anyway, I wanted to ask you one final question about I've got my own hangar here. The icon sits in my own hangar. I built my own hangar. But if aviation moves in the direction it's going, we're going to have a hangar so shortage. We're going to have a a concern with where to put these aircraft. How do you see the future of the fixed base operations or individual air parks maybe becoming an opportunity for folks with airplanes? Yeah, I mean, I frankly, it already is, uh, you know, hangar space. Anyone who's ever tried to get a hangar, anywhere I've certainly tried, has been challenging, whether it was trying to find something in New York Metro to, to put a plane up there or even Chattanooga, Tennessee. There's just a national hangar shortage. It's a real challenge. And there, and it goes back to the structural issues. If, if somebody wants to build a hangar, typically the airports are owned by municipalities and they won't let you own the, so you can't finance the construction of a hangar because you can only lease the land for 20 years or something. And so, yeah. uh, and municipalities, have, we all know that municipalities have underinvested in aviation infrastructure. They view it. I think a lot of cities view aviation as a is a particularly private aviation as a is a feature of the rich. What yeah. they don't realize is that you know this is oftentimes these are business owners that you know, you know run small businesses. You know they can be you know it, you know people that really drive the economy uh, in their local community. 
and it under gets underappreciated. Only fifteen yeah. percent of the overall general aviation aircraft are are jets and turboprops. So we're talking eighty five percent are very much like the Cessna one hundred and fifty we've talked about. Yes, and so, yeah. you know, planes that are cost fifty to one hundred thousand dollars. These are not expensive aircraft, and and so municipalities are just underinvested in it. So I think with all the stuff that's happening in aviation, and I, it's not talked about. When I bought Fly Magazine, and, and before I bought it, if you've ever bought a, a business, you're going to do a lot of diligence, which is the front-end work of understanding the business, the market. One of the things that kept coming up in our research before we bought the magazine was that there was a belief in the aviation. These are people that have been in aviation for many decades, kept telling me that general aviation was dying out, that the yeah. piston aircraft is going away. Well, when I dug into the data, that wasn't true. That's the number correct. of pilots bottomed out in 2016, but are on the way up. It's really a demographic issue. You know, it's a generational gen- demographic issue. Just the, the the Gen Xers is the smallest generation, whereas the millennials are actually a much larger generation. So it's a generation issue. We're now on the upswing. The Aviation was largely a function. The innovation and investment was largely a function of the Cold War days, where a lot of the money was government-funded. But what's happened over the past 20 years is that venture capital and private investment has really taken hold in all sectors of our economy, and it's entering into aviation. And what that's going to do is drive so much new technology, new aircraft, and whether or not all those businesses will be successful, all those airframe and new business models will be successful, the amount of money that's flowing into it will create innovation for the industry. Mm-hmm. And so we in general aviation get to be the beneficiary of it. Interesting. And so, you mentioned the G3X. It's one example of innovation and investment that's come from the private sector that's enabled that. We're going to see more and more investment that takes place. And what it's going to do is drive... And another renaissance in aviation, but it's also mm-hmm. going to create a major hangar shortage across the country. Yes, indeed. Because you ever- municipalities are not ready. We There's a lot of conversation about the air taxi or the flying car. And we are on the... You know, we are on the cusp of this. If the FAA can get their act together yeah. within the next two to three years, you can have personal aviation vehicles that resemble or personal drones that resemble the flying taxi more than they do yeah. a traditional airplane. Absolutely. The you, FAA has got to get their act together, but when they do, and they will, there's enough money on the sidelines and enough pressure from Congress to make this happen. Once they get it together, then there's going to be a massive increase in aviation activity, oh, yeah. investment, new airframes, and it's going to be, create enormous pressure on the infrastructure that's there because the the convenience of flying, like even if we're talking about an aircraft that does 110 true or even does 85 across the skies, when you're going direct, it's a lot faster than driving. Right. And frankly, it's a lot more fun. So we're yeah. going to see an, a situation where there's going to be an enormous drive towards aviation and an, an enormous renaissance. It's going to put a lot of pressure. There's a massive hangar shortage, and I think it's going to encourage private investment in aviation Absolutely. assets. Uh, did because, you ever yeah, did you ever think the Garmin G3X, the autopilot feature, would be featured in a light sport aircraft? It never was Gene, on the radar. I got to tell you, I so let's just date myself here. So I stopped flying in 1999. The <laughs> Cirrus aircraft was the first glass aircraft that was right. certified, and it. At that point, it was a mystique. It was sort of like, yeah. for those that may not be familiar, 
aviation, sort of like Tesla in 2010, 11, yeah. where nobody had one. And when you saw one, you would sort of like, oh my gosh, that's a Tesla. Whereas today you sort of, you know, they're so pedestrian today. You're just like, oh, that's a Tesla. No big deal. But that's what the glass cockpit was. It was a rare, it was a rare sighting. If you saw one, you sort of just, but nowadays it's everywhere. And I remember last year when I took, or two years ago, when I took up aviation, having to learn how to fly with GPS, while it's not hard or even autopilot, it is distinctly different than flying with just the traditional six pack. And it's so much easier and so much more enjoyable and frankly, so much safer. But you're right. The fact that that technology exists and the fact that I can now fly with GPS without having to remember how to fly with radio dials, it's just so transformative. And one of the safety features on the autopilot, the G3X, is that blue button. You imagine how many lives that has probably saved because... Yeah, it's m- that, nothing more than a panic button if you get in, yeah. if you get into distress, and it's designed to be used by the passenger as well. So, I mean, just the, I mean, you touched on so many things. We we ought to we ought to have another discussion sometime and focus on part one thirty five activity specifically. I'm partners in a a startup called Verijet. Verijet has nineteen Cirrus SF fifty aircraft on the tarmac now. We are making a commitment for about 50 more. That'll take us up close to 70 aircraft in the next year and a half, uh, emanating out of the Southeast United States, Verijet headquartered in Boca Raton. And we were out talking, to your point on where the technology in the future is going and growing, we were up in Burlington, Vermont, visiting the headquarters of Beta Alia, which is the tall. That's worth a discussion with you in the future. <laughs> Electronic vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, battery-based aircraft, a big drone that holds five people. And great for point-to-point shuttling under generally under 150 miles. And I think that is also going to impact the airspace oh, uh, for the enough. light sport characters like you and me. And, and and it's going to do and, and to your other point in terms of safety, we need a major overhaul at the FAA with someone who in government and knows what they're doing to specifically create a structure to manage that evolution in technology that I think will be the next blocker that we're going to be faced with in our growth plan. Yeah, uh, sure. but uh, Folks, Greg, we're out of time, but I just want to say to you personally, thank you very much for this two-part podcast. And uh, folks, you're listening to Craig Fuller, who's the owner of Freightways and uh, also the owner of Flying Magazine. Make sure you go to Flying Magazine, get on and order a subscription and be get your name put into the hat with others for the possible winning of an icon a5 go to genevalentino.com you'll see that icon 85 right there click on a few of the videos and you'll see what kind of fun and excitement you're in for greg thank you for joining us let's do it again gene i'd love to i'd love to talk about the your aviation business with the vision jet so we've got to we got to we got to do that let's make that the next chapter love it Okay, folks, thank you for joining us for another edition of Grassroots Truthcast. I'm Gene Valentino. See you again sometime soon. Take care now. 